you'd turn to your Bibles on page 6, and it's Genesis chapter 8, um, starting at verse 18. Genesis chapter 8, 18. So Noah came out, together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, all the animals and all the creatures that moved along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on the earth, came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and, taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I will now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for you, your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each man too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has, man, has God made man. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds... I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across his shoulders. Then they walked him backward and covered his father's nakedness. 
Their faces were turned the other way, so they would not see his father, their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will be he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his slave. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Altogether, Noah lived 950 years, and then he died. And it's going to bring us the second reading. Second Bible reading will be on page 701, uh, Matthew chapter 24, from verse 36 to 44. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father, as it was in the days of Noah. So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. But up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the home had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have left his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Thanks, Anna. Thanks, Sadi. If you haven't met before, my name is Paul. I'm the pastor here. It's uh, great to welcome you. Uh, you've joined us in the series in Genesis. We're up to Genesis 8 and 9. So please flick back to page uh, 6 of your Bibles. A great story tonight, a story of uh, nakedness and drunkenness and voyeurism. Um, it's going to be an exciting sermon. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of gathering in his place, in his building. Thank you for the musicians uh, that help us to praise you in song. Thank you for people to read the Bible and to pray. And thank you that we can just gather around uh, your word in our own language. And Lord, I do plead with you that as we uh, unpack the scriptures tonight, uh, Lord, would you please uh, deepen our grasp of grace? Would you help us to know you better? Uh, would you help us please to understand really what it means to uh, be saved by you? I ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, have you um, really understood what it means to be saved? That's my question for you tonight. What is your, your response uh, to salvation? I don't know whether you've ever been in that situation where 
uh, you've actually been rescued from something. It might be something simple like you go to the doctors and you're expecting a, a negative test result and as in a bad test result. And the, good, the news is good, it's positive. What, what, do you, what do you feel at that point where you expected bad news but you got good news? Relief? Joy? Thankfulness? Tears? I remember when I was uh, about five, uh, my sister, who was older than me, decided to take me swimming in the ocean. I couldn't really swim. And as we were out there, I was paddling away, and then the tide changed, and I was stuck. And this bloke, I didn't know who he was, he came and he rescued me. And you know, as a five-year-old, standing back on, the, back on the shore, I just burst into tears. I'm not sure whether it was fear or joy or whatever it was, but I- I'd been rescued. Do you remember a few years ago, a guy called uh, Tom Russell was with a miner down in Beaconsfield in the, the mining disaster, and he was stuck underground for one day, two days, I think it was three days. Do you know what, what he did when he first was rescued, when he first came out to air? What did he do? He pumped his fist like that, and then he cried tears of joy because he'd been saved. Same with the guy called Aaron Ralston. He's the guy who, if you know the story, he was rock climbing one day and he, he fell down the rock and he got his arm trapped in, in a rock. He read a book called Between a Rock and a Hard Place. Great title. And after one day, two days, I think it was three days, he realized that nobody was coming to rescue him. And so he got his knife and he, with his own knife, he chopped off his arm and he walked to safety. And in his interview, you know, he had tears in his eyes because he knew that he should have been dead, but he was actually alive. And so my question tonight is, what do you do when you understand that you should be dead, but you're alive? What is your response when you've been rescued or when you've been saved? And I'm asking this question because, you know, I look out at people here at Church by the Bridge, and I know many of you are Christians, uh, think back to the first day when you first understood the gospel, when you first understood that Jesus Christ had died for you, that he had died on the cross so that you could be forgiven, that you were guaranteed eternal life. Think back to that day. What was your response then? I remember my, my response, you know. There was just this, this joy in my heart and this sort of this thankfulness and this wonder and this awe and, yeah, even tears. But today, you know, 19 years later, talk about the cross and it's all very ho-hum. Yeah, I know he died for me and yeah, I know my sins are forgiven and it's all just lackluster. And What is your response when you understood that through Jesus Christ, God has rescued you and God has saved you? That's our main point tonight. I'm not going to unpack every verse tonight. I want to help you to, un- to see how to read the Old Testament in light of Christ. I'm going to do that by starting off by uh, retelling the story of Noah. We met him last week. And I think just to help you hopefully grasp what it would have been like for Noah to have been rescued, I'm going to retell the whole story in the first person. So my name's Noah. Uh, people in my town think I'm a pretty good bloke. 
they call me the righteous man. They call me the blameless one. You know, he's the good bloke. I, I'm not that good. You know, I'm still a bit of a sinner. You know, I still occasionally lie and I cheat and I'm greedy. And I, and I know I'm selfish, but they call me the good bloke. But I, I do walk with God. What I mean by that is actually I've got this really intimate relationship with God. I wake up in the morning and I want to spend time with God. And I, I want to just pray. And, you know, he's my God and I, I love him. Anyway, uh, the word of our time was, was pretty, pretty evil, to be honest. And God looked down at the world and he said these words. He said, every inclination of the human heart is only evil all the time. I thought that was a bit harsh. But then I thought about it and I thought, no, it's not harsh. It's actually spot on. Every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. And you know that broke God's heart? God grieved at sin. God was heartbroken when he saw the sin of the world. Anyway, for some reason, I don't know why, but for some reason God chose me, Noah. It must have been his grace because I didn't deserve it. And he said to me, he said, Noah, I'm going to destroy this world. I'm grieved at the world that I've made, so I'm going to start again. I'm going to wipe out every man and every woman and every boy and every girl and every animal and every bird and every living creature is going to be wiped out by a flood. You know what my first response was? My first response was, God, that's crazy. I was actually quite angry. I thought, how dare you, God? How can you do that, God? But then I thought, no, you can do that, God, because you're God. And yeah, we are evil and we do deserve to die. And then I, my second response is I thought of all my family and all my friends and I thought, no, not them, Lord, please. And then God told me something else. God said to me, Noah, I want you to make a boat. And I went, I'm no boat maker, God. What do you mean make a boat? And he said, no, this is going to be a massive boat. It's going to be 450 feet long and 75 feet by 25 feet. And you've got to make it from cypress wood. And I thought, how am I going to do that? But, you know, he is God, so I did what he told me. And so day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, there we are making a boat. And people laughed at us. And then God spoke to me again. I remember it really clearly. He said to me, Noah, the time's come. In seven days' time, I'm going to destroy this world by a flood. And my heart was just disturbed. And I looked at it and I went, no, God. Not my family, not my friends, please. Seven days, six days, five days, four days, three days, two days, the day before. And me and my wife and my three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth, and their wives, we went into this ark. And we closed the door of the ark, or rather God shut us in. And it was just dark inside and we were in this ark with all these animals and I thought, am I crazy? And the rain started. Rain, 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 
and the heavens opened, and the heavens opened, and the heavens opened, and all I could hear was this rain, rain, and rain, and more rain, and then the springs burst, and suddenly the ark was moving, and we were floating, and there was water everywhere. And I was thinking, what about those people outside the ark? I could just imagine them swimming, and and shouting, and screaming, and, and drowning. And the rain continued for 40 days and 40 nights. And for some reason, I was safe inside this ark. I didn't understand that. And then, after about 150 days, about half a year, the boat suddenly stopped. And I thought, have the waters receded? Um, Is it safe to go out now? So I sent out a... um, a raven first, and he just went back and forth. And then I sent out a, a dove and came straight back to me. And then I sent out another dove seven days later, and this dove came back with a freshly plucked olive leaf in its mouth. And I thought, yep, the waters have receded. It's safe to go out. But I didn't go out because God, God hadn't told me to go out. And then God spoke to me again and said, Noah, it's time to leave the ark. Can you imagine what I was thinking? I've been inside this ark for a year, over a year. And the, the door opened. And you know what? I, I, all I wanted to hear was the noise of some birds. But I didn't hear any. And all I wanted to hear was the roar of some animals. But I didn't hear that either. <laughs> And I just wanted to hear the scream of a young child or a baby or just see some young children running around or just see some older people. I didn't see them either because God had kept his promise. And there was no life left on this earth. And I realized it was just me and my wife and my sons and their wives. So what did I do when I came out of the ark? What would you have done when you came out of the ark? Oh, I thought about must get some food. <laughs> must rush back to my house, make sure that's okay. Oh, maybe go for a run, maybe play a game of tennis. I didn't do that. This might sound odd to you, but this is the first thing I did. This is the most important thing I knew I had to do. I took some earth and, and I made an altar. And then I took some of the seven pairs of clean animals that God had put in the ark with me and I took the first animal and I slaughtered it. And I said, God, I'm a wretched sinner and I'm guilty of slander. And I took another animal and I slaughtered that animal. I said, God, I'm a wretched sinner. I'm guilty of being selfish. And I took another animal and another animal and another animal. And I sacrificed all these animals to God because I knew that I was evil and I was wretched. I didn't deserve to be saved. I wasn't thinking, wow, I'm such a great man. Noah, the great man. In my heart, I was thinking, my God, he is gracious. And the only response, the right response, was just gratitude. And just to worship him as God and to give him the due that he was deserved. That's my story. Let me ask you, if you come out of the ark that day, if you'd been the only person saved... What would have been your first response? 
I don't think I'd even thought to have offered a sacrifice to God. But that's what Noah did. Have you made the links? We've looked at it last week as well. 2 Peter 3, I think it's on the screen. 2 Peter 3. By these waters, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Peter picks up the story of the flood and says, God destroyed the world by a flood. He's promised not to do that again, but there will be another day when he comes and destroys the world again, not by water, but by a fire, by flames. There'll be a day when the Lord Jesus Christ steps back into the world, not as a baby, not into a dirty stable, but with the trumpet sounds and the angels, and every eye will see him, and he'll come and judge. And he'll come and wrap up this world. And as we heard in Matthew 24, it's on the screen, uh, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. In the days, of, days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day, Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus says, just as Noah was in the ark and everyone else was destroyed, the question for you, my friends, is on that day, on judgment day, will you be safe? Will you be in the ark? Will you be in Christ? Because God in his grace and God in his mercy has warned you and he sent his son, Jesus Christ, in, in flesh, in bodily form, to live and to die on a cross and to shed blood so that you can be forgiven. And on that cross, uh, the full wrath of God was taken by one man, Jesus Christ, so that if you're in the ark, if you're in Jesus Christ, yet you're not floating through the waters, you're floating through the flames, safe and protected and in a refuge called Jesus And there may be some people here tonight who have never done that. And everything I'm about to say tonight from Genesis 8 to 9 makes no sense to you because you've never actually come to Jesus Christ. You've never actually put yourself in the ark, as it were. And I am pleading with you tonight, please, please listen to what I'm about to say because he's your only hope. He is your refuge. He's the way through the flames into eternal life. But speaking to the masses tonight, speaking to the majority... How do you respond? How did you respond this morning when you woke up knowing that you're in Christ and knowing you'd be saved? What was your first response? Are you just overwhelmed and blown away and excited and joyful and tears? Or is it just, yeah, that's right. Jesus died for me, ho-hum, know it all. I'm going to give you three words from Genesis 8 and 9 tonight which will help you, I I hope, to respond rightly to being saved. The first word is worship. Worship. When the Bible uses the word worship, it doesn't mean singing with gusto. It doesn't mean an emotional response. Uh, That's not how the Bible uses the word worship. It literally means to to bow down or to to fall at God's feet or to sacrifice or to just look at God and say, wow, God, you are so worthy and I'm just a wretched sinner. And that's really what Noah did. Chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an, uh, an altar. He built an altar to the Lord and taking some of all the clean animals and the clean birds, he sacrificed burned offerings on it. 
See, I think that I would have sacrificed a thanksgiving offering. Thank you, God, for saving me. But Noah, the very first thing he does was, was sacrifice what a burnt offering. A burnt offering is when you, you transfer your sins onto the head of an animal, you sacrifice the animal, and the animal is totally consumed in your place. A burnt offering is a way of saying, I deserve death, I deserve to die, I'm guilty, I need your forgiveness. It's kind of strange, isn't it? The first thing that Noah did was to say, I need forgiveness. But he knew that he was a wretched sinner. And so verse 21, uh, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. It's very sensual, isn't it? Uh, the Lord smelt this aroma of the burnt offering and said, yep, I accept that sacrifice, I accept that offering, and now I accept the offerer. Remember, Noah's not saying, I am wonderful. He's on his knees, sitting before God, offering sacrifices to his God, because he needs that. He needs forgiveness. And that's the essence of worship, my friends. It's to sacrifice, it's to acknowledge your guilt, it's to confess your sin, it's that humble, total dependence and dedication on your God for your salvation. Now let me join the dots for you. Is that what you do day by day? Sacrifice. Worship. When you think that Jesus Christ is your refuge, your ark through the flames... When you think, I deserve to die, do you, do you worship God like that? Why didn't you bring an animal tonight? Why didn't you bring a goat or a bull or a dove? And why didn't you slit its throat and confess your sins on it? And why didn't you sprinkle its blood? Because, you know, in many ways it would be a much more vivid and visual picture for us, wouldn't it? The reality that blood needs to be shed for you to be forgiven. Why didn't you do that? Because you don't need to do it anymore, do you? Let me read these words from Hebrews. Hebrews 7 says these words. Unlike the other high priests, Jesus does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Jesus sacrificed for their sins, for the sins of us, once, for all people, when he offered himself. And we don't need to sacrifice animals because Jesus is the sacrifice. And God says, I don't desire burnt offerings. I desire a broken and contrite heart. Have you got it? Jesus is your sacrifice. Jesus is the one who was burnt in your place, literally. The full wrath of God fell on his shoulders so that you can pass through those flames. Uh, to worship God in response to salvation, you don't need to do anything except meditate on Jesus. I know a man who, you know, when he sings, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, you just sort of see his eyes sort of well up. He's been a Christian now for 50 years, but he's still emotionally moved when he thinks about the cross of Christ. Rock of ages, cleft for me, hide me now, my refuge be. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my God, would die, would die for me? And we sing these words, and there should be an emotional response of wonder and awe and gratitude that he would do that for me. And I reckon the problem is that 
our eyes so quickly turn onto ourselves. And even the songs that we sing today are all about me, 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 me. Lift your eyes off yourself and onto Jesus. The sacrifice, the one that you worship. The second problem is that we, we're wired in a way, we, we do want to do something. So what can I do? So, so Noah could, could make an animal sacrifice. Noah could do that. What can I do? Listen to these words from Romans 12. They're on the screen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That is the worshipful response. Because I'm saved, my spiritual act of worship is to to offer myself. Uh, I can't offer an animal, but I can offer myself in response to my salvation. Because I'm saved, Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated to you. Lord, take my silver, take my gold, take my mind, take my will. It's not mine anymore. It belongs to you. Because I'm saved, I want to give my whole being to you, God. Because I'm saved, you know, I want to fill my mind with the scriptures and things about God. And I want to fill my mind with with things which please God. And I want to do things for God in response to his sacrifice. Because I'm saved, all I want to do is just give my whole self to you, God. It is so beautiful. It's beautiful when you see people who are constantly thankful for Calvary and so full of gratitude and awe and wonder at their God. They can't understand it all, but they just know that Jesus loves them and dies for them. That's my first word. I do pray that every day your response to being saved is just worship. The second word is assurance. Because Noah's probably thinking, why bother? Why bother making sacrifices? Why bother populating the earth? Because God could just destroy the earth again. Well, look at chapter 9, verse 8. God says to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you. And with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. This is the covenant that God made that's going to assure Noah. A covenant is just a binding agreement. So, you know, a marriage is a covenant between two people. A man and a woman, and they covenant to love each other, to death they do part. And they they sign or seal that covenant with a ring, a sign of the promises they're going to make. Well, God makes a covenant with Noah. It's there, isn't it, in verse 11. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. He's not saying that there'll be no more flooding. He's saying, but never again will I look at the earth and send a flood that will cause the whole of mankind to perish. I'm not going to do that again. I noticed a few things. It's an unconditional covenant. So what does Noah do in this covenant? Nothing. It's not not like a contract where you you keep your side of the bargain. It's just God saying, I'm going to do this. It's universal. So verse 12, look at the end of verse 12, a covenant for all generations to come. So you're in there and I'm in there. And what's the sign? Verse 13. I've set my rainbow in the clouds. And it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I remember my covenant between me and you 
and never again will the waters become a flood to destroy your life. It's a pretty cool sign, isn't it? I don't think God created rainbows just for this sign. I think rainbows are always there. But he chose a sign of a rainbow for this covenant. It's cool because, it's just beautiful because, you know, when does the rainbow appear? The rainbow appears when the, the dark clouds give way to brilliant sunshine. And it's kind of a, a picture that the dark clouds of God's wrath have given way to the brilliant sunshine of his forgiveness and his, his mercy and his grace. You know, the, the, the light of love and the light of grace has, has overwhelmed uh, the darkness of his wrath. And can you imagine Noah living on the earth at the time and watching the repopulated earth mess up and sleep around and gossip and slander and be selfish? And he goes, no, God's going to destroy us again. And then the rainbow appears. Oh yeah, no he's not. He's promised he won't destroy us like that again. And can you imagine the days of Sodom and Gomorrah where people are sexually depraved and, and God had every right to wipe out mankind, but then the rainbow appears. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm faithful to my covenant. And in the days of Israel when you know, they, they were grumbling because God hadn't given them food and water. He just rescued them. God had every right to wipe them out, but no, he's not because the rainbow appears. And God is faithful to his promise, not going to destroy them again. And time and time and time and time again, God's heart was broken by sin, but he'd, faith, he'd faithfully promised he wouldn't destroy the world. And that beautiful sign of the rainbow, that's, that's their assurance. And that's our assurance. But when you see a rainbow outside, you're supposed to look at that rainbow and say what? Say, I deserve death. I deserve to be wiped out. God's judgment is real. But God is gracious and God is merciful and God is kind. And friends, when you see that rainbow, you're supposed to say what? You're supposed to say, God's promised he won't destroy the world by a flood again, but but he's also promised that he will destroy the world again, not by a flood, but by flames. And, you know, great. I'm not going to drown, but burning to death is not particularly nice either. So what is your assurance? What is the covenant that God has given you Today, to be absolutely certain, absolutely secure that you're going to pass through the flames to eternal life. Remember the, uh, the night before Jesus died? He took a cup at the Lord's Supper and he said the words, you know, this is my blood of the new covenant. The new binding agreement that if you're sheltered under the blood of Christ, if you have come to Christ and said, I need you, I trust you, thank you, you're in the ark, you're in the ark, and you will pass through the flames. Sometimes Christians are accused of being arrogant. And sometimes, sadly, we are. Too many Christians fight over petty things and stand their ground and always claim to be right. That's arrogance. But saying to somebody that you're certain of heaven and you're certain of being saved and you're certain of eternal life is not arrogance. It's assurance. Because God has promised that. Because his blood was shed for you. That's the covenant. That's the sign. 
And so, friends, why? Why do many of us go through life feeling insecure? And why do we question our faith and doubt our faith? And why are we going, am I really saved? How can I be certain? What, what more could God do for you? He's shown you the ark. He's shown you the rainbow. He's shown you his son. He's shown you the cross. He's shown you the cup of the new covenant. What more could God do to you, for you, to show that he's trustworthy, he is faithful, and you could be absolutely certain of being saved? My third word for you tonight is this. Reality. Let's be really realistic about this world we live in. Here are a few truths about our world. Our world is still full of sin. I'm still full of sin. This world is never going to be perfect. Don't believe what you hear. It's not going to get better. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. Why? Because the problem is here in the heart. And to solve the problem means solving the heart problem called sin. And God tried to do that once with a a radical solution called a flood. Uh, But what was God's verdict after the flood? Look at verse 21 of chapter 8. 8 verse 21. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is literally still evil from childhood. Even though every inclination of his heart's post-flood is still evil. See, the flood hasn't really dealt with a sin problem. And I think what's odd, that, that, that's what this uh, odd event is about at the end of chapter 9. I think it's just saying sin is still in the world post-flood. You've got drunkenness, you've got nakedness, you've got voyeurism. And God wants us to see straight away that the flood has changed nothing. Sin is still in this world. So chapter 9, verse 20, Noah plants a vineyard. And we have wine for the first time in the Bible. And remember, Noah is a righteous man, but he's not perfect. He has a really bad day. Verse 21, he drank some of the wine. He became drunk and he lay uncovered inside his tent. Is it a sin to drink alcohol? No, but drunkenness is a sin. Is it a sin to sleep naked? No. So what is the sin? At least you're supposed to say, well, Noah's not perfect. Noah's not the savior. The sin comes in verse 22. Uh, Ham, the father of Canaan, why are we told he's the father of Canaan? Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness. Some commentators talk about this being a euphemism for sexual misconduct. I don't see that. We're just told that he walks into his tent and sees his father naked. What should he have done? He should have just covered his father and walked outside. What does he do? Verse 22, he went and told his two brothers outside. What's wrong with that? Down to verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him. What had he done to him? I think Shem and Japheth's response is, explains what he'd done. Uh, they walk into the tent backwards with, with a garment over their shoulders and they cover their father's nakedness. And you just imagine sort of Ham going outside and saying, hey, you should go look inside. Dad, he's inside, he's so drunk. <laughs> he's so blind drunk, he couldn't even bother to, to put in his pajamas. He's just lying there naked, sprawled naked. Go and have a look, go and see him. And, you know, Shem and Japheth, they haven't done that because they respect their dad. They honor their father and their mother, just as they're told to. 
They respect their dad and they respect God. But Ham, no respect at all. And so when Noah awakes, what does he say? Verse 25, cursed be Canaan. That's not fair, is it? Why is Canaan cursed? Why wasn't Ham cursed? Because God can't undo his promise, and he's promised to bless Noah and his sons. But he will curse Canaan, the son of Ham. And as you read the rest of the Old Testament, who is it that, that opposes the Israelites? Who is it that, that, that are the sexually depraved nations? Who is it? The Canaanites. The sons of Ham, the Canaanites. I was teaching this in a Bible study a couple weeks back, and uh, one of my uh, group members said to us, well, it's a bit harsh, isn't it? I mean, Ham couldn't help it. He just walked to the tent, and it wasn't his fault that his father was lying naked. I go, no, it wasn't his fault, but he had a choice to make at that point. He could act rightly or he could act wrongly. And he chose to act wrongly. And there's something that he could have done. He could have covered his father. And I think this story is just supposed to say to us, the world that you live in is full of sex and gossip and greed and selfishness. It's not perfect. And you live in that world and I live in that world and my heart and your heart are still full of those things as well. And I have to say that's a massive encouragement to me. To know that I will never be perfect the day of its glory. Because so many days I wake up and you know, a bit like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, I go, the things I do, I don't want to do. And when I go to bed tonight, I know there are things that I want to do that I haven't done and just what a wretched man I am. And in many ways that's okay. Oh, it's not okay to deliberately sin, but it's okay to say, I'm not perfect. Because I'm not in glory yet. And we're supposed to say, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus and take me home. But you know, I find that, that prayer really hard to say as well. So if I know that, I know that if Jesus did come back tonight, there would be so many people who I love who would not be in the ark and who are not saved. And so part of me doesn't want him to come back. But the other part of me really wants him to come back because I want, I want my sins to be dealt with. I want to be taken out of this world and just be in glory. Isn't that an encouragement? The reality that from the, de- the day you die, yeah, you're still battled with sin because that's the world that you live in. You're still saved. You're still saved. Just keep on striving, keep on fighting. So I'll ask you again. Think back to the first time you first accepted Christ, if you're a Christian here tonight. What was your response then? What's your response tonight? Joy? Gratitude? Awe? Wonder? Just overwhelmed that he died for you? Or is he just so, so, so complacent and so, yeah, I know that. Please take these three words into your week. Worship him. Worship Jesus. Be assured. Trust that you are saved. And the reality check. Someone pointed out to me after the 5 p.m. that the acronym there is 
is war. And that's delivered. Because we are at war in this world. We're passing through this world heading for glory. And if you're in the ark, I do pray that every day your response will be like Noah. Assured, worshipful, but also realistic. Let me pray for us right now. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, Lord Jesus, I want to thank and praise you that you saw us and you were willing to sacrifice yourself. I praise you that we don't need to bring animals to this place tonight because you have sacrificed yourself. And I praise you that all you demand of us is lives, lives lived in obedience, lives sacrificed to you. Forgive us for the way that the cross has become so familiar. Forgive us when we hear of your blood shed and we're not even moved. And Lord, forgive us for the times when we think that we are deserving and somebody's. Our Father in heaven, I, I thank you and I praise you for your grace that you've shown so many of us here tonight. And if there are people here tonight who are not yet in the ark, who are yet to come to Christ, Lord, please, please be gracious to them. We want to say thank you, Lord. I thank you in Jesus' precious name.